TCO listeners, you are in for a special treat today. I am here with the incredible Paul Haynes, a.k.a. The Kid. You may have seen Paul in recent coverage pertaining to the Golden State Killer due to his research and collaboration with the late Michelle McNamara. Paul was recently featured in the HBO docuseries, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, directed by one of my film heroes, Liz Garbus and Elizabeth Wolf. Not only is Paul a remarkable researcher, but he loves the art of film and writing. Paul, I want to thank you for joining me today on The Chosen Ones. Thanks for having me, Celine. Yeah, absolutely. So I just want to dive right into your work. So for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Golden State Killer case, can you provide a brief overview of what that is? And I know that's a tall order. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I don't know if brief is possible, but I'll I'll, I'll try. Um, (laughs) Golden State Killer was a serial rapist turned, well, he was a serial burglar turned serial rapist turned serial killer who was active in uh, Northern and then Southern California over a 12 year period. So from 1974 to 1986, this one individual committed hundreds of burglaries, upwards of 50 sexual assaults and home invasions in which he would primarily target couples uh, and uh, 13 murders. Uh, the, The disparate series were not linked until 2001 when uh, forensic evidence from the East Bay area was uh, connected to forensic evidence from a series of murders in Southern California. And those murders hadn't been connected until the mid-90s, and this is all due to the advent of, of DNA. So in the early 2000s, it was recognized that a serial, like previously uh, undetected, or to some extent undetected serial offender had been in Sacramento and Southern California over this 12-year period. Um, the series in Sacramento was well-known in that area in the late 70s. Fender, it was dubbed the East Area Rapist in the press at that time. Mm-hmm. And the East Area Rapist held Sacramento in such a vice grip of fear that schedules were altered by this series. Uh, he broke into people's houses in the middle of the night. Uh, he would confront sleeping couples in bed he would have the female bind the male, then he would bind the female. He would reinforce the bindings in the male. He would initially tell them he was only there for food and money, but then once he separated the female, he would proceed to sexually assault her. Uh, he would sometimes stack dishes and other household items on the male's back, and he would tell the male, uh, if I hear these dishes rattle, I'll kill everyone in the house. Right. Uh, he was a terrifying offender, and it took um, decades to identify him. And he was identified via forensic genealogy. And forensic genealogy, I'm sure, as your listeners know, is uh, the science of reverse engineering a DNA profile. Uh, Using a DNA profile to develop family trees that lead authorities directly to the identity of the offender. And that's that's how Joseph James D'Angelo was identified in 2018 as... Uh, Siri just started talking to me. <laughs> Does that happen to you? Does you have Siri just start I talking do. to you? Or Alexa, uh, both of yeah. them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, that's how Joseph James D'Angelo was identified in 2018 as the Golden State Killer. And he is the first, pretty much the first offender uh, who was captured using this, this uh, uh, investigative technique. I think there are a couple of other wow. cases prior um, that, that where resolution had been aided by forensic genealogy. But it's really the Golden State Killer that put forensic genealogy or 
investigative genetic genealogy, which I think is, is it's kind of like, uh, um, uh, what was it in the, in the early 2000s? There was like Blu-ray, but then there was like HD DVD or oh, right. some other format. It's yeah. like competing, competing monikers. And unfortunately, I see investigative genetic genealogy uh, cropping up more. And yeah. forensic genealogy just rolls off the tongue a lot more easily, more easily and I, just, I wish it would stick. <laughs> Nevertheless, uh, this, this put this, this um, investigative technique on the map. And mm-hmm. since 2018, uh, nearly 100 other, 150 other cold cases have been resolved using the same wow. uh, technology. It's Ugh. remarkable. That's wild. Yeah. And, I, and this case is so near and dear to my heart, even though I didn't you know, follow it when I was younger, but learning about it in recent years and then following all the work that everyone has done, because this is a huge collaboration between numerous people. I'm a firm believer. Michelle was someone that brought this case back on the map with her book, which you also assisted with after her passing. Well, Um, I was working with Michelle from the very beginning. I just want to make that clear. Michelle and I began working together in 2011. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was her uh, research partner on the book and, uh, and then I did uh, help finish the book after her passing. Um, I contributed to it and, uh, you know, I co-executive produced the HBO docuseries that I'm, yeah. that I'm also appearing in. So phenomenal. And yes, yeah, so listeners, if you haven't read the book, um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, as well as watch the HBO series, please do it. It is one of the best documentaries and books that I have ever read. It's so engaging and sincere. Um, and truly, it's an honor that you're here with us, Paul. So thank you so much for that. Um, but I want to ask you, what was the most challenging part of that case for you, as well as the most rewarding? Oh my goodness. Uh, the most challenging part of the case, uh, mm-hmm. I think, um, well, identifying the Golden State Killer, yeah. <laughs> which, you know, <laughs> nice. uh, nobody, nobody was able to do. Uh, yeah. it was, uh, it was science. It mm-hmm. was pure, pure science that did it, you know? Right. And that's the thing about forensic genealogy. It's, it's this magical planchette that just guides investigators directly, uh, into the offender's identity. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it truly is, and I hate using the phrase "game changer." You know, it's like one of those terms I, I keep using to retire it's a from my vocabulary. Word. Yeah, but still, yeah, it's true. Yeah, it's true. Uh, like zero sum game. I'm, I'm so fucking sick <laughs> of hearing that. Uh, <laughs> but it really, it really does. It's the biggest. I, I would say it's an even more significant pivot in the forensic landscape than than DNA pro, than DNA yeah. uh, as a forensic tool, uh, sure. which I, I think the first case. The first case that was solved using DNA was 1986, 1987 in England. Um, mm. So we've come a long way right. since then. Uh, right. you, don't, you need only tiny amounts of DNA at this point, and right. you don't need a suspect. You just need access mm-hmm. to a genealogical database. Mm-hmm. Yep. And that's a great plug, too, for our listeners. So if you haven't, you know, submitted your DNA. GEDmatch. GEDmatch. <laughs> that's what it is. GEDmatch. Get on Ged, it. GEDmatch.com. There it is. Perfect. So now want to pivot a little bit. So you grew up in Florida, correct? Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> no, I like Florida now, but you have, well, you're not from there. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. But my dream school was Florida state university, which okay. may say a lot about not me. A, not, but... a, not a bad school. Not a bad school. <laughs> so, but you have kept a close eye on their cases. So since our podcast focuses on the Vallow Daybell case, 
there was one case in particular that came out of Florida that took America by storm in 2008. And I remember this clear as day from Nancy Grace to every news outlet. Of course, yeah. everyone knows I'm talking about Casey Anthony. Can you yeah. give us a little brief overview of that case? Brief overview of the uh, Casey Anthony case. Yeah, so mm -hmm. Casey Anthony was, I think, what, what was she, 2022? 20, How old was she's, she? She was really young, She right? was really young. I want to say in that, yeah, 22 to 24 age range. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, she, she had a daughter named Kaylee um, who just seemingly disappeared uh, mm -hmm. one day. Uh, and uh, her, uh, Casey Anthony's parents had been trying to talk to Kaylee and each, each attempt was met with a different excuse as to why uh, Kaylee was unavailable. So uh, their suspicions grew. And a, a month after they had last spoken with Kaylee, uh, they showed up at uh, Casey Anthony's boyfriend's apartment and both of them were like stoned and watching TV and Casey Anthony uh, admitted that um, she hadn't seen her daughter in, in over a month and that her nanny had, had taken her. Right. Uh, she didn't seem terribly concerned uh, and she seemed in fact inconvenienced by the mother's appearance. And you can hear on the 911 call that her mother places when Casey gets on the line, you, you can just hear the contempt and irritation in her right. voice before she, before she self-corrects. Mm -hmm. So uh, Casey Anthony claimed that a nanny had taken the child and was holding the child and she didn't go to the police because she thought she could handle it on, on her own. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, long story short, uh, the, the daughter's body turned up uh, that December, not far from the residence, and Casey mm -hmm. Anthony was charged with murder, and she maintained her story, and she never displayed um, a, a, a shadow uh, of an emotion one way or the other about, about her daughter. Right. And, uh, you know, everyone was really rooting for uh, her, her prosecution. And, uh, you know, the prosecution sought the death penalty mm -hmm. and she was well represented. Uh, I think, what was her attorney's name? One of them was Jose Diaz, uh, right. who was this very clever litigator. Uh, and Casey Anthony was, uh, she, she was, you know, I think only convicted uh, for like a lesser charge of, uh, what was it, tampering with evidence or something? Right. If yeah. even that. And, and right. she, walked, she, walked, she walked away a free woman, which outraged people much like the O.J. Simpson verdict, much like the George Hernandez verdict. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I have a theory. Why do you think, why do you think the Casey Anthony case um, was uh, as sensational as, as, as it was at that time? Why do you think people took such an interest in the Casey Anthony case? Well, it's kind of, there's so many similar parallels to the Vallo and Daybill case, which I think is, is what resonates, is that you have a mother who is just very nonchalant in that regard of the child is missing. You have yeah. the grandparents asking that question, just like Lay and Carrie, um, or Kay and Larry did, you know, with JJ and Tylee. So when you have a parent who genuinely shows a disinterest and where their child mm. is, that's when you have this moment of what's going on here. Because when we look at some cases like Diane Downs, She's trying to feed the narrative that, you know, a crazed man started shooting inside of her car, shot her children in that immediate moment. But when you have a premeditated murder, like this situation in both cases, that's when people's ears tend to perk up, I think. Because again, I am friends with 
people who have children, I'm sure you do too, they know where their kids are at 24-7. Doesn't matter, you know? So when you have this now perspective of a mother just kind of like la-di-da, she's with a nanny, she's here, she's there, of course, that's going to start raising some eyebrows and asking those questions. So same reason, like I said, the Ballot Daybell case, that's the whole reason why the West Coast was made aware of the case was because Kay and Larry were asking that question, well, we haven't spoken to our grandson, JJ, and same thing, same excuses. He's at yeah. school, he's doing this, he's playing at a friend's house, he's down in Arizona. You know, like, it, it's asinine to think that a mother can just brush off children like that, plain and simple. So, yeah. So now, currently where we're sitting right now with the Vallo and Daybell case, we know that Lori is free from murder charges at this point. So... Uh, At the time, uh, you know, with Casey, when we're looking at these two things, um, and Polly Katowski from Murder Squad, when she was oh, on Murder show, Squad, yeah. <laughs> yeah, she made a great note in saying that Casey Anthony was charged with so many things that I think now prosecutors and the state are a little reluctant to make similar charges to Lori because Casey was overly charged. Where do you, where do you think that sits? Like, do you think that's a true statement or? Mm, no, I don't know. I don't think so. I think it's two different states. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the, the Casey Anthony verdict uh, could, could have easily gone a, a different way with, uh, with a different jury or even on a different day. Mm. Um, I, I think it's just all about the defense and uh, the, the the level of or the caliber of uh, forensic evidence that the prosecution has mm-hmm. and the degree of doubt that the defense is able able to generate. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that parallels with the Casey Anthony case are, um, you know, purely fodder for like uh, discussion between people like you and me. Yeah. 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 That's, that's fair to and say. I, and I, uh, uh, you know, to my earlier question, my theory about why cases like this and cases like Casey, Casey Anthony uh, resonate uh, mm-hmm. so strongly uh, with, with people in America and, and, and create such a media sensation is that uh, people love to have a villain. Oh. And, and what, what, what greater villain than a mother who kills mm-hmm. her own child purely because that child is an inconvenience sure. and then exhibits nothing resembling remorse or sadness or grief uh, in the wake of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it's very, it's like, this is someone that you can unequivocally hate. Yeah. And uh, I, I just think that it's the kind of thing that it, it's unifying in a way it's like sports. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think you, you kind of see that over the last four years with, with, uh, with the Trump rallies. Sure. Um, hate is such a, a unifying hate and anger are so it toxically unifying, right? Right. Um, I mean, like for me, like this kind of case has never been that interesting because of the level of media coverage they receive, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to like, you know, Golden State Killer, um, it, it wasn't until Michelle died and that right. became a huge story that the awareness of Golden State Killer uh, expanded to the degree that it did. Sure. Um, nobody, knew, nobody knew about Golden State Killer mm-hmm. for years and years and years, despite, despite Golden State Killer being the most prolific known offender in, in the history of, of the state of California, mm-hmm. despite him being the most terrifying 
kind of offender, someone that, you know, attacks people in, at their least, you'd think, at their, at their most secure. Um, mm -hmm. But in a way, no, you know, it's like, and I've talked about this before, uh, with other serial offenders who target runaways and sex workers, you know, as, as the consumer, as the true crime consumer, you can tell yourself, well, I would, I'm safe from this kind of offender because I would never be in that position. But yeah. everybody at some point, uh, you know, is asleep in, in a bed in their own home. Sure. I mean, you know, except those that are those that don't have a home. Right. Uh, so it's like you can't avoid being in that in that situation. Mm -hmm. um, that that's what that's that's it's it's the the terror, the horror of an offender like that. That's the hook for me. And I think there are really there are two ba you know, primary like camps mm -hmm. among true crime aficionados. There's the camp that is drawn to cases like that. Mm -hmm. where it's the mystery and the shadows and, and the, the, just the pure horror of the situation it combined with, you know, the police procedural aspect. That's the hook. And then there's the other camp that's drawn to the personality that they can project uh, hatred and rage onto. And I think nobody, nobody will disagree that murdering your own kid is wrong, right? Yeah. But, like, for me, I, I never, very rarely will I feel any significant degree of hatred or animus toward an offender because it's clear that what they did was wrong mm -hmm. and the fact that they're 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 being prosecuted validates uh the wrongness of what they did uh, my animus is reserved for people in positions of power in in politics and business and in leadership who abuse their position and power and who are validated by you know public support Mm -hmm. uh, and that's, and I think that's a better target. And, and I wish more people would turn their, their rage and animus toward people like that, uh, yeah. because it's just, it's no one, dis no one disagrees. It's wrong to murder. It's wrong to rape, et cetera, et cetera. So right. it's like, yeah. And I think what interests me most about Casey Anthony are the, uh, the interrogation videos. <clears throat> and there's this yeah. great YouTube channel. There's this great YouTube channel called Jim can't swim JCS criminal psychology. Mm -hmm. And he, he, so the format is they will take interrogation video or body cam video or video of um, suspected perpetrators and, and they will deconstruct them. They mm. will pause them and uh, give analyses of the offender's behavior. It's like a blow by blow, like sports analysis. Oh, wow. And watching it, and for me, that's so much more compelling than yeah. like stylized repackaging of cases like this for entertainment purposes because it's raw and it's real. Mm -hmm. And watching Casey Anthony, it's just weird how um, nonchalant she is throughout her every interaction mm -hmm. with authorities. Mm -hmm. uh, there's this completely flat affect. There's like, and JCS talks about this. There's moments where she gives affirmative responses like, yeah, mm -hmm. at times it feel incongruent with what the investigator, the rhythms of the conversation. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just betrays someone that's trying to project a certain like n normalcy. Right. Um, and it's just, sociopaths are fascinating. I think we can learn a lot about human nature just by right. studying sociopaths, you know, just like, mm -hmm. like uh, um, John Douglas's book, Mindhunter is almost like a Bible for right. human behavior. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you are segueing into my next question perfectly, actually. Um, oh, the, the, you're, you're welcome. Yeah, I know. It's like, do you have my notes? <laughs> so with that, because... <laughs> creepy if I did. Yeah, exactly. So this is a great question because, 
you know, the way that you just described Casey, that's honestly what we have heard and what we have seen in the videos of Lori interacting, you know, with law enforcement and either times she's super erratic or she's super calm and almost flirtatious. Uh, that, those are the parts that super creep me out actually. But I wanted to ask, in your opinion, do you think the homicidal mother is simply just a mental break or do you think they have the makeup of a true murderer like D'Angelo, let's say? Oh, I, I mean, I think they, they are psychopaths. And I think that, you know, particularly with Daybell, so many people in her orbit and in Chad Daybell's orbit uh, have died under uh, questionable circumstances that it's almost like a perfect storm that these two people came together. Sure. Uh, yeah. I think that, yeah, Lori Daybell, Casey Anthony, are, they're psychopaths. They're empty people. And it's, I think there are a lot more people like that uh, on this planet than you would think. Yeah. Uh, it's just that most of them never transgress, or if they do, it's only once or twice and it remains undetected. Uh, so I think that uh, it, the real question is, what are the factors that actually push these people over the edge where other mm -hmm. sociopaths remain um, on the safe side of the law, right? Mm -hmm. Now, I think that I would argue that Joseph James D'Angelo is maybe not a pure psychopath. I think that he has psychopathic uh, elements, but I would argue that Joseph James D'Angelo uh, has borderline personality disorder mm. uh, and is motivated, is motivated by unresolved trauma and um, uh, uh, warped sexual wiring because yeah. his crimes were compulsive. He was driven by right. a need to act out again and again versus Casey Anthony, who, uh, you know, her child was an obstacle standing between her and the life that she wanted to live. And her solution was just to kill the kid. Sure. Uh, most of us, for most of us, that would be unthinkable. Having a kid becomes, you know, a compromise and it's just like owning a pet. And yeah. uh, like, I, at this point in my life, I don't, I don't think a pet would work for me. So I don't have one. If, if I did, right. I mean, you know, it's the difference between having a pet and having a kid is you, you choose to have a pet. Right. Many people don't choose to have a kid. It happens. But, mm -hmm. you know, there are, there are solutions if you don't want a kid. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're pro-choice, then there's the option of... So, yeah, I mean, you know, there are alternatives. If you're pro-choice, uh, you can terminate the pregnancy, you know. Uh, if you have the kid, you can surrender the kid for adoption. You can give the kid to a, a parent or relative to raise. I mean, even if you're, the kid is three or four or however old Haley mm -hmm. Anthony was. You know, if, if you can't hack being a parent, there are options. And right. the fact that Casey Anthony made the choice that she made tells me that she's not only evil, but she's also pretty fucking stupid. Right. And I find that, I find to be, there's a correlation often between evil and stupid. I mean, you know, look at, look at our, our soon-to-be ex-president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a great example. And, yeah. and you're right. And that's, that's the thing that I find interesting and why I you know, wanted to look into this Valor Daybell case because my brain can't handle that. Like I get you can be married to someone and you just can't stand them anymore. You don't love them, whatever it may be. Then you divorce them and you move on with life. You don't sit there and you plot their murder, right? And then it's not just one ex-husband. Now it's two husbands that are dead. I mean, it, it's just so confusing to me. So the one thing that I wanted to touch on then that you started going into, because when we're looking at someone like Joseph D'Angelo, I think a question that I get asked a lot, especially with my work with 
the Ted Bundy case, and I get asked this a lot, why did he never harm his family or harm, you know, Liz Klopfer's daughter or Joseph D'Angelo also had daughters? Like, why didn't he murder them? You know, like that, I don't know if you get that question asked a lot, but I do. But so what, again, well, what, what do you, what do you think the answer is? I think there is a level of, I think that they can love and yep. have tender hearted feelings. But then you look at these mothers like Casey and Lori yeah. who murdered their children. I mean, it, it yeah. doesn't make any sense to my brain in that regard. Well, I, I think if you look at the ways in which men are evil and the ways in which women are evil, uh, they're evil differently. And you mm -hmm. rarely find uh, female serial killers that, that operate the same way that male serial killers operate. Female serial sure. killers typically, typically, you know, they, they're financially motivated. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think there are more female serial killers that use poison than any other method of murder. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there are, some, there are very, very few exceptions. Eileen Warnos is one of them. Uh, yeah. Although Eileen Warnos, I don't think, was motivated uh, by lust. And I no. think that's one yeah. thing that you don't see with female offenders. I can think of only one offhand mm -hmm. case of a female offender uh, who killed a child uh, mm -hmm. and it appeared to be sexually motivated. And that was, um, oh, fuck. It was in, it was, uh, I think, Sandra Cantu. Do you remember that case? I don't. Uh-uh. Uh, it was a little girl that was found dead and she'd been sexually assaulted. And turns out the, the killer was this, this woman that I think knew the family. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, she had, I think, penetrated the, the child with like an object or something. Um, and, uh, but but she, she suffered from some kind of psychotic or borderline psychotic mental, mental illness. Mm. Uh, so I, I, would, I, would, I would argue that doesn't challenge my assertion that um, there are no lust-motivated uh, female serial yeah, killers right. or, or offenders for the most right. part. And um, I mean, certainly there are, there are women that behave in a way that's sexually inappropriate. You often mm -hmm. hear about women like that are teachers who've had affairs with, uh, with male high school or sexual relationships. I, I, affair is the wrong word. Uh, sexual relationships with um, uh, like female high school teachers who've had sexual relationships with students. Right. Um, but uh, you know, that's typically, it, it's usually you don't find a sexual sadism uh, yeah. in women, only right. men. Right. And, and so I think that's, I think with Joseph D'Angelo, I think, and this is why I would argue that he's not a pure psychopath because clearly he, he has the capacity for empathy. I think that, and as someone who, who has trauma myself, I, I understand the way that it, 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 empathy can be conditional. And so strangers represent um, a threat, yeah. you know, in a way that people close to you don't. And I think for someone like D'Angelo, uh, he only targeted strangers right. uh, because they were not people to him. They were something less than people that he could use as uh, uh, surrogates mm -hmm. to um, exercise some kind of trauma that was mm -hmm. never resolved. Right, right. And the interesting part of that, and I shared this with you a few weeks ago, um, I have a friend who actually grew up with Joseph D'Angelo's daughters, and she yeah. remembers Joseph actually being a wonderful, loving dad. And that's, you know, and that's when she had the realization that who the Golden State Killer was, it's completely tarnished 
all those memories that she used to have. But it's so interesting to me that, again, we look at these different perpetrators and the amount of normalcy that they try to have in their daily lives. Like that was, you know, kind of the reason why I went towards my research with Ted Bundy because I couldn't understand that aspect that he could murder these children and teens and young women um, and obviously rape them before and after they were deceased. And so it's, it's this level of normalcy. And, and that's what I keep hearing about Lori is that Lori was very much this loving mother. She baked cookies. She did this. She did that. But the bottom line is she, whether she had a hand in the murders of JJ and Tylee or not, she still allowed that. She was still aware of it. We now know that, especially from these recent audio recordings and telephone calls, like we know it's evident she was aware of that. So, so whatever we find out research wise, it's just, I think it really just betrays that, that, you know, the, the cookie cutter Norman Rockwell exterior is a facade and that's yeah. just not funny for most people who exhibit, who exhibit that identity. I mean, you know, it's like, do you, are you, are you, like a, are you into David Lynch at all? Um, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's like, it's like with the David Lynch universe, it's all about, you know, the sickness that mm-hmm. exists in that, that experience. So yeah, I mean, look, people who project that that image, I'm mm-hmm. very wary of. I'm mm-hmm. very wary of people. I'm very wary of people like that. I'm very wary of celebrities who project uh, a super squeaky clean, wholesome image. Because oh, yeah. consider Bill Cos, consider Bill Cosby, consider uh, you know uh, Tim Allen, uh, Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> you know, I think this is. Uh, yeah, Ellen. Yeah, Ellen DeGeneres. I mm-hmm. think it's masking something. Yeah, you know, and yeah. with, with with rougher, rougher, more candid personalities. I don't know, like George Carlin, Lenny Bruce. You know, these are people mm-hmm. that, uh, as far as we know, uh, didn't didn't exploit and treat people like shit. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know. I, I'm very wary of that of that facade. And um, mm-hmm. so yeah, I don't know. Baking cookies and all that shit. I I, I don't put any uh, any stock in that. Right. Yeah. Do you think that Lori may escape murder charges for JJ and Tylee and be set free like Casey? I have no idea. I mean, after, after the 2016 election, I, I wouldn't put it past evil to win in any case. I mean, it mm. just, who knows? Who knows? Yeah. I, I, something, something's wrong with, with, um, with this, with this culture and the society. So uh, if, if she, if she somehow escaped, you know, uh, justice, that wouldn't, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people's fears right now yeah. in, in this community of just, is this going to be the same situation and scenario? Because again, we're looking at a mother, blonde haired Mormon woman seems to, you know, it, it just has all the same narratives that we've seen time and time again. But I think you're right. It could honestly go either way. Um, I just think that's the frustration of the community just sitting here and waiting like why does she not have any murder charges against her there's just nothing so you know and with her waiving her preliminary hearing i mean that was pretty telling in my honest opinion of like okay then what are you really hiding but like i said these little nuggets are being dropped and god forbid that she gets off but I guess we'll have to wait and see. So I want to pivot again, uh, just talking about 
being in the world of the Golden State Killer for so many years, like you said, 2011 is when you connected with Michelle and you guys are going through this process and going through the boxes that were given to her um, and, you know, trying to formulate who this person could be. So how do you, how do you handle that in your personal life? So when you're working on something so dark and sinister, how does that affect your personal life? You know, when I first, uh, when I first developed an interest in serial killers, it was when I was like 18, 19, Mm -hmm. and it was purely for the most part, uh, unsolved cases. It was the unidentified serial killer. And that's still the kind of case that most interests me. But I remember at the time, you know, I was like still living at home and and I lived in a house. Now I live in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it, it, yeah, it sensitized me to my environment a lot. And Mm -hmm. I just remember like I would be up like two or three in the morning reading about Jack the Ripper. And if I had to get up to use the bathroom, I I just had goosebumps just moving through my house and moving away Mm. from the safety of my computer screen, even though it's not 1888 and I'm not a sex (laughs) worker. So I'm probably not going to be killed by Jack the Ripper. Nonetheless, it's a real thing that happened and it's scary. Yeah. And so um, it was similar when I first, uh, you know, uh, um, began immersing myself in Golden State Killer. But at at this point, I I really am inured to it, Um, you know, aside from maybe the errant detail here and there that uh, uh, might be hair raising. um, Mm -hmm. It's something that I can live with. And I think it's really, again, it goes back to my own personal trauma. Uh, I grew up in a really dysfunctional household in which there was a lot of abuse. And uh, I think that's, that's one of the factors that predisposes me to um, a taste for like true crime and horror films. And I think that might be one thing that, because it really is, it's, it's a, it's a dichotomy. You either like horror films or you don't, you're either into true crime or you're not. And I think that, uh, uh, trauma is early childhood trauma is one of the things that might um, be a factor in that. Right. So how do you decompress now? Like if you're taking a full day and you're working on mm-hmm. something, what do you like to do? So horror films obviously <laughs> seem like a reoccurring theme. Are you asking like what, what I do for fun or how do I decompress from the, the, the material? From the material or self-care? Uh, again, However. you know, I'm like inured to it so I can very easily uh, toggle from between that and mm-hmm. like, I don't know, Adult Swim or something or, or <laughs> right. you know, uh, it, right. it's not a challenge for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I believe it. But it's, and I think it's an interesting thing because I think oftentimes, again, you know, whether it's podcast listeners or documentarian watchers or whomever it may be, I think people think that we navigate in this space all day, every day, but you know, how we properly turn that off. Like I'm a very big parks and rec fan. So that's what I do to, you know, steer away from this. So I think it's important that we remind people that, you know, this isn't our eat, breathe, sleep and eat all day, every day. So that's good. Now it has been such an honor, Paul, just watching you go, especially the last couple of years, just as you said, you know, once Michelle's book came out, then there was this interest in the Golden State Killer, but you really have been this, honestly, a pioneer in terms of your research and what you've done. Um, Where can people find out more information about the Golden State Killer case aside from um, uh, Michelle's book and the documentary? What are some other good resources that people can look into the case with? 
You know, uh, I mean, you're asking the wrong person because I would not direct people in anywhere other than I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Um, I, I think that I'll Be Gone in the Dark, uh, both between the book and the docuseries, it, that really is the definitive, um, you know, record of, yeah. of the case. And right. uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the story has been told and told and told and, and CNN is now doing something about it. In 2020, mm. just aired a special about it. And uh, E uh, did a, uh, you know, a docuseries about it. And there have been... Uh, aside from, you know, Michelle's book, all, all these little self-published books, uh, uh, you know, including Richard Shelby's book. And, mm -hmm. and he was like the, the lead detective in Sacramento in the early 70s or in the mid 70s, the beginning of the series. And there was a Richard or Larry Crompton's book, uh, yeah. Sudden Terror. Um, I, I don't know. There, there's a lot of stuff out there. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, you really don't need to read all of it uh, to get uh, a sense, a sufficient idea of what this case is all about. So yeah, yeah I'll Be Gone in the Dark by Michelle McNamara and the HBO docuseries I'll Be Gone in the Dark um, are the two primary resources, I would say. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. I love a good plug. And with that, I do also want to plug our friends of the podcast, Murder Squad. Uh, Paul was also featured chatting with a couple individuals who also were a part of this case. Uh, mm. Paul Holes, as well as Billy Jensen, they are also seen in I'll Be Gone in the Dark. So you can find those episodes, again, anywhere that you listen to your podcasts. Um, and then there's also an I'll Be Gone in the Dark podcast too. <laughs> That's that right. Yeah. It's a companion really well podcast. Yeah. yeah. So I would highly recommend people, if you're going to watch the docuseries, also download the podcast. I learned so much from it again, not just as a filmmaker, but as someone in the true crime community. And there's a lot of value in that. So, and the, and the podcast was hosted by the wonderful Nancy Miller, who yes. edited Michelle McNamara's uh, long form piece for LA magazine in wow. that was published in 20, 2013. And that's what led to I'll Be Gone in the Dark. Wow. Amazing. Like I said, you guys were a dream team. It's been an honor watching everything that you guys have done, the success of the case, and seeing now that D'Angelo is behind bars. I Again, I thank you for all of your hard work and dedication to that. And, and again, just your team, amazing work. So, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. And we look forward to having you back on the show a little later. Thank you, Celine. All right, take care.